0: Good morning to you all. Glad you're here. Let's start
1: with a question. When you hear the word prayer, what is it that you think of? When you hear the word prayer, what do you think of? Perhaps it's a mosque full of people bowing face down on mats
0: pointing towards Mecca five times a day. Perhaps it could be incense burning in a temple.
1: Perhaps the beads of a rosary flicking through thumbs. Perhaps it's a journal
0: where fervent words to God are poured out like water on pages. Perhaps. It's rocking in place as words that your mind don't find coherent, but your heart can't help uttering spill forth from your lips.
1: Perhaps it's hands on flesh, the warmth of sacred presence filling the space. Prayer
0: has meant a number of different things to me through the years. Growing up in my parents' mainline denominational church, prayer consisted of statements that were read on Sundays during a weekly worship service. Sometimes these statements were read by the pastor. Sometimes they were read by the congregation. The words were printed in bold in our bulletins, and we were told to stand to speak them. The Lord's Prayer, we were taught to memorize and speak every Sunday together. Prayer might also have been grace, spoken before an important meal like Thanksgiving. That was the extent of prayer for me, until I was about a senior in high school, facing the first significant decision of my life, where to go to college. I had the good fortune of being accepted to multiple universities, but I struggled to decide which school, which part of the country to land in. It felt huge to my 17-year-old brain. Prayer was what I found myself whispering under my breath between homework assignments, on plane trips to college visits, or laying in bed at night. In terms of belief, I was pretty agnostic, but my heart couldn't help calling out, God, I don't know who you are or what you even are. I don't know if you're the God of Christianity or something else. But whoever you are, if you're real, if you're there, show me where to go to school. Prayer was also the quiet moment. Strolling through the grounds of one particular campus where I felt this deep sense of calm, this palpable sense of sacred presence as if something or someone was close and the closeness was good. Like really, really loving and good. And in that moment, I looked around myself and I saw my life. I saw my future. I felt it there. In that moment, it was as if I knew as clearly as I had known anything before that this was where I needed to be.
1: I think there is a God
0: I found myself naming. And that God wants me to go to school here. As I went further in exploring my spirituality, particularly within the context of Christian spaces on my college campus that would describe themselves as evangelical or charismatic, prayer became meetings with other students in dorm rooms where we asked God for help with our studies or for growth in our faith, for more direction in our future. In the context of my new vineyard church, I was taught a whole model for praying, the five-step prayer model that gave us tools for ministering to others with prayers for healing and guidance, deliverance, usually with hands laid on, the person being prayed for. And through the decades, prayers continued to evolve for me. It's meant different things at different times. Sometimes it's been a solitary practice. Sometimes with others. Sometimes there have been long lists of concerns to name to God. Sometimes just a few. At times prayer has been an activity of the mind. At times it's involved my whole body, like walking a prayer labyrinth. There have been seasons when prayer felt natural and easy. Like talking with a best friend for hours. The connection seems so natural, you just lose yourself in it and don't notice how much time has passed. Then there have been those seasons where it's felt very quiet. Like I felt like I had nothing to say to God, and I'm not sure if God has anything to say to me. There have been seasons where prayer has been more mystical, kind of hard to describe with words, more just like this sense of sacred. Presence than anything else. And there have been seasons when I've really longed to encounter something beyond me and wondered if there was anything to encounter at all.
1: In more recent years, I found myself asking
0: new theological questions, reading different perspectives on God, on spirituality, trying to dismantle idols in my faith. And as certain beliefs or understandings have been deconstructed, as we say, taken apart a bit. I'm left at times with questions that can feel kind of hard to resolve around the whole activity of prayer. What does it mean? How is it supposed to actually work? And yet, even amidst my questions, prayer is also that tug in me that won't quite let go. Prayer is the thing I feel at night after searching through articles and texts for the right story to teach on Sunday, the right story to tackle with my community for a conversation on prayer. Prayer is the stirring in the night that calls me back to a certain story that I've ruled out because I just have too many qualms about it, too many questions I don't know how to answer. And yet, prayer is this internal noticing that for some reason I still feel drawn to ponder it. There is the hope that even amidst all we have to deconstruct, God is somehow with us in the recovering of what is still sacred in our midst and the building of what our faith will look like going forward. I start with this long, meandering, confessional um, reflection on my own journey with prayer as we engage this new series that we kind of soft-launched on Easter. It's a series I've titled Dialogue with the Divine. It was in a Tuesday night call recently with folks in our community that I had invited anyone present to offer ideas for teaching topics this year, and John DeWitt threw out the idea of a series on prayer. And my initial response was, like, quite positive. Sounds great. It felt in line with what I was sensing to be a core priority for Haven this year. As I mentioned a few weeks ago on Easter, I've been sensing in this community through a number of conversations with a number of you over the last several months, one core priority for Haven is a desire to grow in spiritual connection. In fact, it's one of the three core emphases I'm suggesting we as a Haven community really lean into in the next year or so. So I'm articulating these three emphases, all three of them, as one, growing in spiritual connection, two, growing in collaboration, and three, growing in action. So growing in spiritual connection means giving ourselves tools to to connect with the divine, to hear from God, to discern with one another what haven is called to be. Going forward, to do that collectively, to have the capacity to do that collectively. Growing in collaboration, bringing more awareness to how we thrive as a community, as we function collectively, each of us bringing what we have to bear and allowing space for one another to share it. Growing in action, helping Haven move from simply a space where we're considering ideas to actually productive action about them together, embodying them in the world, right? These are the three core emphases I'm identifying in recent months through conversations with all of you, frankly, like since I've gotten back from the sabbatical. And as we consider this first theme together, growing in spiritual connection, I think the topic of prayer feels like an important component. But as I found myself actually trying to engage it as a teacher, reading books on, on articles on prayer, looking at stories from sacred texts, it's felt a little more complicated. I can't help but also be present. Two questions, ambivalences I alluded to in my intro. Like, and so, like we considered in our recent series about how faith There are faith evolutions. I have to acknowledge my own relationship to prayer has been evolving. If I'm honest, in this season, prayer is something I personally feel more comfortable doing in practice than trying to exactly explain how or why it works. Maybe you can relate. Wherever you're at in your own relationship to prayer, whether you feel like you have it all figured out and no questions at all, or, or are, tr- are wondering about things. I just wanna be honest and invite you to consider how we can evolve together in the midst of it all. So let's start with maybe something real basic. I wanna start by suggesting a core foundation that I hope to build this series upon. It's an idea that probably most of us maybe take for granted, but I think it is a core kind of theological truth to consider. Um, It's been the core of of some of the the theological things I've been reading recently, and I think it's helpful to name it. The idea that God is relational. That God is relational. Whatever we might say about the divine, the spirit, the higher power, however you want to name it, I'm going to suggest that I believe at least a Jesus-centered spirituality points us to experience God in relationship with us the divine desires and welcomes connection with each and every one of us and if that's true then it follows that prayer matters you can't build a relationship without communication you cannot be connected to someone you never talk to so prayer is communication between people and God at its most simple, right? At its core, conversations about prayer are about learning to meaningfully communicate with the God who wants to be in relationship with us. That's what I guess I hope we can grow in together in this season. So through this series, we're going to take a brief look at a few examples of people encountering God in prayer through the Bible, We'll look way back in our tradition to some characters in the Hebrew Bible, t- taking them chronologically and pondering how their stories shaped the Jewish faith, the, the, G- the tradition Jesus was a part of, and how it continues to shape um, our own. We won't be looking at these stories as formulas, or because we expect our own experiences will exactly match what we read. The stories are ancient. their worldviews that they are spoken from may be very different than our own. We can also acknowledge that just like no two marriages are the same, no two friendships are the same, no two relationships with God are the same. There might be similarities, parables, things you can learn from people about in other relationships that benefit your own. But ultimately, communication is personal. It's in part dependent on context on the individuals involved, and it's up to each of us to navigate. Our sacred stories can give us inspiration, hope, grounding, as we work the journey. And that's what we'll hope for in the weeks to come. I'm going to invite us to consider a few different characters that appear throughout the Hebrew Bible. Each of their stories, I think, highlights a different aspect of prayer, a different component of dialogue with the divine. And all of that brings me to our story for today and its central character. A woman named Hannah. A little background on Hannah. Her story comes early in the narrative of the people of Israel. It's the era of the judges, which in the story of the Jewish people came after the God known as Yahweh has liberated the Hebrew slaves and brought them through 40 years of wandering in the desert, before taking hold of their promised land. Now they're in the land of Canaan, and they live this kind of tribal existence. It's a volatile time of holding and defending the land, as well as trying to learn to be a people together. After the deaths of Moses, who led them out of Egypt, and Joshua, who led them in conquering the land, They have roughly 300 years in which they have a rotating group of leaders called Judges who settle disputes between them, oversee religious observance, and direct them in defending themselves. Now, The book of 1 Samuel is essentially about the period of transition from Judges to a new era in which there will be two kinds of leaders alongside one another. The prophets, who communicate on behalf of God, and the monarchs, who rule as kings, set aside and anointed by God. The story of 1 Samuel, where Hannah appears, is the story of this transition. Okay, So the world in which we find Hannah is, like much of the Hebrew Bible, quite patriarchal. Women are valued particularly for their role in childbearing. Hannah is one of two wives to her husband, Elkanah, the other wife, Peninnah, has several children, but Hannah did not. Hannah does not. She is childless, and it greatly distresses her. Hannah's story connects with a number of stories of women that we have seen in Genesis for whom challenges with fertility and rivalries between women because of fertility, um, challenges that are at play. We think of pairs of women like Sarah and Hagar, as well as Leah and Rachel. And just like Chris acknowledged in her story today, I want to acknowledge all of the ways that these stories, when we're talking about women and childbearing and fertility, can feel challenging. It feels challenging to me in our time. When we think about the value of women's lives, of what it means to be a parent, of women's reproductive health, and so on. I just want to name that. But this is the ancient story we've received. A story of this family in which one of two wives longed to have children of her own. And the family was religiously observant, which meant in their time, once a year they went to a place called Shiloh, which was the spiritual center of the day. There was not yet a temple to worship in. This was a sort of tent. This was called the tabernacle, where all of the most sacred artifacts were kept. This was the most sacred place. For, uh, for these people at this time. And each year, Elkanah and his family would pilgrimage to Shiloh. They would take part in a big celebration. They would make sacrifices and be in this festival. And that's the background for where we pick up the story in the first chapter of 1 Samuel, beginning with verse 6.
1: So Hannah's rival, Peninnah, used to aggravate her, Hannah, to the point of exasperation.
0: I'm realizing I have maybe a different translation. Um, I'm just going to read mine, and it might not quite match. Just to irritate her, since the Lord had not enabled her to have children. This is how it would go year after year. As often as she went up to the Lord's house, Penina would offend her in that way. So she cried and refused to eat. And then her husband Elkanah said to her, Hannah, why do you weep and not eat? Why are you so sad? Am I not better to you than ten sons? On one occasion in Shiloh, after they had finished eating and drinking, Hannah got up. Now at the time, Eli the priest was sitting in his chair by the doorpost of the Lord's temple. And she was very upset as she prayed to the Lord and she was weeping uncontrollably. She made a vow, saying, O Lord of hosts, if you will look with compassion on the suffering of your female servant, remembering me and not forgetting your servant, and give a male child to your servant, then I will dedicate him to the Lord all the days of his life. His hair will never be cut. And as she continued praying to the Lord, Eli was watching her mouth, and now Hannah was speaking from her heart. Although her lips were moving, her voice was inaudible. Eli, therefore, thought she was drunk. So he said to her, how often do you intend to get drunk? Put away your wine. But Hannah replied, that's not the way it is, my Lord. I am under a great deal of stress. I have drunk neither wine nor beer. Rather, I have poured out my soul to the Lord. Don't consider your servant a wicked woman, for until now I have spoken from my deep pain and anguish. Eli replied, go in peace. And may the God of Israel grant the request that you have asked of him. She said, May I, your servant, find favor in your sight. So the woman went her way and got something to eat. Her face no longer looked sad. They got up early the next morning, and after worshiping the Lord, they returned to their home at Ramah. Elkanah had marital relations with his wife Hannah, and the Lord remembered her. After some time, Hannah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel,
1: thinking, I asked the Lord for him. Okay.
0: A couple of little context comments. When she spoke of his hair never being cut, she's speaking of the vow of the Nazarite, which at the time was this special class of religious people who were set apart for service to God and for whom it was expected that they would abstain from certain activities, including never drinking alcohol and never cutting their hair. So this is our story for today. And again, I, I have to acknowledge the questions of cultural context that come up here. And I'm just going to name one place that trips me up in this story. You might be feeling it too. I, I switched to your translation just to make it easier to gather. But, um, you know, there may be a little bit of difference here. But it's, I think it's trivial. Core to the story seems to be an assumption by the storyteller that God is personally responsible for Hannah's infertility. It it describes her, at least in my translation, as the Lord had not enabled her to have children. Other translations saying things like the Lord had closed her womb or something like that. So I got to admit, I have issues with that framing. (laughs) Um, I'm not going to try to tackle exhaustively the theological questions it brings up. But I want to acknowledge them. And just say, again, working with a text as ancient as this, I think we can appreciate that the story and the worldview it comes from might take a perspective that we may or may not agree with personally on, on what is happening exactly in the story. It does not mean that the story is without value for us. It does not mean that God can't speak through it to us. So I want to let those questions and qualms be there and also still consider what's essential here, however we might understand Hannah's circumstances. What I'm more interested in here than how Hannah's problem occurred or even whether or not she gets the resolution she seeks is what happens in the midst of it. What happens as she dialogues with the divine? This is why I think this story has continued to nudge me this week, despite the questions and concerns I have about it. Ultimately, I think Hannah's story has value for us, for how her experience of prayer demonstrates what I think for many is a core component of how and why we connect in God, with God in prayer. You might summarize Hannah's prayer here as the prayer for help. The prayer for help. How is this prayer for help expressed? Hannah feels desperate need, and in this story she brings her desperation to God. Hannah's experience of being a woman in the ancient world without children is an experience of great distress for her. It may be the reason her husband has taken another wife, despite the fact that the story clarifies even before where we pick up that he feels more love and affection for Hannah. Clearly, the pain of her situation is magnified by the active oppression she's experiencing from the rival wife. And this ongoing pressure from Panina pushes Hannah to a place of real desperation. But Hannah doesn't channel her desperation into some foolish act like some of the matriarchs who came before her in Genesis. She does not try to take her fertility into her own hands. Rather, she brings her desperation to the most sacred place. She waits for the annual trip to Shiloh, and then she leaves the dinner, the big party, to visit the tabernacle, the holiest place for her on earth. And from there, she passionately calls for Yahweh to help. She's pouring out her soul, she says. She's speaking from deep pain and anguish, it says. And in the experience
1: of prayer, something seems to happen. This is the second thing I notice, that Hannah experiences God to be the unique
0: place of understanding. Hannah experiences God to be the unique place of understanding. She is isolated and misunderstood by pretty much every person in this story. But in God, she seems to find the solace of being truly known. Consider how Hannah's relationship to Yahweh is different than her relationship to anyone else. The other wife, Penina, of course, taunts and ridicules her. Her husband, Elkanah, is caring, but he doesn't understand her grief. He he thinks his love should be enough for her. He cannot appreciate why she still longs to be a mother. The priest thinks she's drunk, and he watches her, all this fervent prayer, with that kind of judgment. All of these folks, even the ones who are well-meaning, miss something with Hannah. But the divine does not. With God, Hannah feels heard and received. She experiences empathy more deeply than she can anywhere else, and this empathy has power. I don't know whether Hannah could have or would have known what was coming after her time of crying out for help, but it's interesting that there is a change that comes over Hannah She experiences consolation. Her face turns from distressed to at peace before she lies with her husband again. The consolation comes before she conceives.
1: Perhaps that peace came just from the experience of being known
0: and heard. In the prayer of help, Hannah received relief. Just in the act of bringing her need to the divine and connecting with one who was bigger than her and had the capacity to hold it. The relationship with God's unique. And it's in that relationship alone that Hannah feels fully understood. So, Anne Lamott is a contemporary Bay Area writer who grew up secular but became a Christian as an adult writes on spiritual matters, and she has a book on prayer. She titles with three short words, each of which speak to what she thinks is a different kind of core prayer in her life, and it's called Help, Thanks, Wow. In the chapter on the prayer for help, she describes a number of different ways that folks she knows conceive of the divine. Friends of hers, one who like prays to Mount Tam as God. Um, Another, it's more like the force in Star Wars. And then there's her own version of Christian faith. And then she says this, but you know what? When my other friends and I have run out of good ideas on how to fix the unfixable, when we finally stop trying to heal our own sick, stressed mind with our own sick, stressed minds, when we are truly at the end of our rope and just done,
1: we say the same prayer. We say help. We say, help, this is really all too much. Or
0: I am going crazy, or I can't do this, or I can't stop doing this, or I can't feel anything, or help, he's going to leave me, or I have no life, or I hate the one I've created, or I forgot to have a life, or I forgot to pay attention as it scrolled by, or even help. I hate her so much. And one of my parents is dying or will never die. Unfortunately, we haven't even gotten to the big ticket items yet. Cancer, financial ruin, lost children, incontinence, Help! Help. Help is the prayer I was praying sincerely as a high school senior. It was the prayer that led me to move to Chicago. Had I not landed there, who knows the trajectory my life would have taken. I might not have continued my journey of faith that came to life during that time. I likely would never have met or married Jason since he grew up in Chicago. So I probably wouldn't have the three kids I do now. I can't say if I would have ever become a pastor, maybe, but it seems doubtful my journey would have brought me to this exact place to start this particular community. It could have been a great track of life but it wouldn't have been this one. Engaging in that prayer of help and listening for an answer brought me here. The prayer of help is the heart of what I have found myself praying most honestly and openly, even when I question what I understand about God or prayer at all, or what I hope for help to even look like. Sometimes the ask is clear, and it might feel like there's an answer like that first experience, wondering where to go to school. Oftentimes, it's more muddled. When I first heard about the masses that were found in my beloved younger
1: sister's breasts, my prayer was something like, Help! Don't let it be cancer. But the pathology reports came back that it was. Then I had a week or so
0: of praying something like, help, don't let it have spread throughout her body, don't let it be more than stage two. And then the word came back that it had spread,
1: that it was stage four.
0: And yet, neither myself nor my sister, from her own spiritual framework, nor anyone else in the process who was engaging in some version of prayer around my sister's treatment could deny the palpable sense that the divine was present that our cries for help weren't just empty words bouncing off a wall but they landed somewhere even when the news was devastating the prognosis terrifying the treatment
1: excruciating the presence was there
0: There was power and comfort in connecting with the source of help. And today, four years since my sister has been in remission, the journey of finding God
1: in the prayer for help continues. Help is the prayer I pray most frequently as a parent, particularly
0: as my kids are facing problems that are bigger than I feel equipped to solve on my own bigger than what I can fix with a snack and a hug. Help seems to come from unexpected sources, offering words of consolation, showing love to my kids. I sense help from the divine in my inner wisdom. The cry for help is what I feel in the midst of preparing a teaching and wondering if I have anything meaningful to offer in the midst of it. I sense help in that internal nudge to just do it anyway and be honest about my questions and wrestling. Perhaps the prayer for help is less about any one ask and any one prayer answered, but it's about an ongoing posture and practice, living in a place of humility that honors our own limitations and our need for the divine who desires connection with us.
1: Maybe that is really what the prayer for help is about. Finally, as I've pondered and prayed for help through this story of Hannah myself this week, there's one other part of
0: her story that's felt meaningful to notice. Hannah's prayer to God for help is about more than her personal need. Hannah's prayer for help brings her into a bigger story. The passage about Hannah ends happily with her conceiving the child. But the story is bigger than this one prayer of this one woman being answered the way she desires. Hannah's son Samuel plays a significant role in the story of God's people that the Bible tells. Samuel is the one who will be the last judge and the first prophet. The one who will anoint the first king of Israel. The one who will identify David and call him to take his place as king. David the ancestor of Jesus the one who lays the groundwork for a messiah that early that people of Jesus's era believed would come and sit on David's throne and that Jesus was to fulfill the whole line of divinely appointed leaders that Jesus is supposed to be the fulfillment of begins with Samuel with the one whose name means I asked God for him. Perhaps Hannah's story is included in our text to remind us that actually the whole lineage begins with her. The woman who asked.
1: The one who
0: brought her desperation to God, who offered herself and her firstborn son to the purposes of the divine, who called out for help when she needed it. In bringing her need for help to God, Hannah moves from isolation to community. She becomes more than a mother to Samuel and the five other children who followed. She becomes an ancestor. One in a long line of people of faith whose stories have rippled over the millennia. And in the verses after our story ends, Hannah is given the honor. If you read chapter 2, you'll see it of singing one of several special songs sung by a handful of women throughout the Bible, what Bible scholars call the Songs of Deliverance. Just a few verses of it. My heart rejoices in the Lord, she says. In the Lord my horn is lifted high. There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one beside you. There is no rock like our God. The bows of the warriors are broken, but those who stumbled are armed with strength. Those who were full hire themselves out for food, but those who are hungry are hungry no more. If that sounds familiar, it's because you've likely heard it before. Maybe a few months ago. When Mary in the midst of her own divine pregnancy, sings her famous Magnificat, her famous song of deliverance, celebrating the way the divine is righting wrongs, moving for justice, moved by the cries of the oppressed, committed to restoration. She's quoting Hannah. I can't say I understand what happens when every prayer I pray, crying for help, for myself or for someone else, I can't say I understand it. But I can say that, like Hannah, I believe that we too, when we reach out to the divine for help, often find ourselves moving from places of isolation to communion. I believe that's the core idea Jesus is pointing to when he encouraged folks to bring forward their needs. And he invited God to move in their lives in ways that connected not only with the divine, but also with one another. I believe it's why the early church called themselves the body of Christ, understanding that somehow God's spirit is manifest in powerful ways when we're together. And so we cry out for help, not just for ourselves, but for one another. We hold each other's needs. We say yes and amen and come close, oh God, as we echo one another's cries for help. We look at the places of deep need that we all feel collectively and we can call out for help together. Help for this dying planet. Help for the incessant gun violence. Help for our toxic
1: politics. Help. Help. Friends, We may not understand it all. Our journeys of spiritual connection
0: and prayer might keep evolving, but I encourage us today and in the season to come as we grow in communicating with God to remember Hannah and in our own ways, pray the prayer of help.
1: May we too, when we bring our desperation to the divine,
0: experience the power of being understood. May we, too, find solace in knowing our needs matter to one who is bigger than us. May we, too, be called into a bigger story and a community where the longing for help can be called upon and embodied together. And may we, like Hannah, in our own ways, find places of deliverance. Moments where we experience the blessing of the sacred with us. Moments when we sense a genuine connection with something beyond. Moments when we stand
1: ourselves in the hope that there is no rock like our God. May it be. Amen. I'm going to lead us now in a moment of prayer, and then we'll take a bit of time to, to chat. God, whatever our relationship is to this idea,
0: this practice, in all its different forms, is that
1: we call prayer. At its heart, we honor the capacity to communicate with a God who wants to be in relationship with us. Whatever that looks like. may we receive the blessing of experiencing
0: that in new ways in this season, of recovering it if it's a part of our faith journey that has been dormant for a while,
1: of growing in it if it's a part that is is fully alive. And may our Expression of our inner longings for help, be in a helpful conversation starter. May that be a place to begin. Would you be with us as we identify the various cries in our own heart for
0: help? Some, t- some of them might feel like they're right there on the surface. It's easy to see them and it's easy to speak them and hold them out to you. And some of them are they de- buried a lot deeper down. And it's going to take a little time and patience
1: to let them surface. But they're there. Would you be the soft place that each of us can bring them to? That place of understanding and empathy
0: that Hannah experienced. Would we find new freedom in having the courage to name what we need? And may we together grow in collectively
1: holding one another's cries for help. Amen. So, (laughs) we're we're running low on time. We're going to go
0: ahead and take um some time for conversation, and then we'll probably have some abridged worship. And during worship, I'm going to have a practice for us, which I realize we didn't set up yet, so I'm going to be working on that while you guys talk. Um, so here are some conversations, but it's, it's in, in, in uh, connection with what we've just discussed. So here are some questions for you to discuss. What does prayer generally look like in your own spiritual journey? Are there ways in which your understanding or practice of prayer has evolved? Um, are there areas in your life where you've prayed that prayer for help? How did that impact your connection to God? Or how might your prayers for help have connected you to a broader community? Um, where might you have where might you have connected it's supposed to be where might you have connected with others in their prayers for help? Okay? Any of that or whatever else feels relevant. And so we'll do this for about seven minutes or so, and then we'll come back for about 10 minutes of worship.